0: Welcome to the third class in this, this class on the Dialog and Suttas. And I thought I'd just start by asking again if there's um, any questions or comments from the material last week, if you had thought about any further what we talked about then. Yeah,
1: I, I, I brought in a, a question about
2: right speech uh-huh.
1: and um, I just wondered if there was anything that would relate to like four-letter words and how they would relate
0: to right speech. Uh, that's an interesting question. Um, there are some other categories for right speech besides what we talked about last time. Um, there's one teaching that says wise speech or right speech should be it shouldn't it has the four things that it shouldn't be it shouldn't be false it shouldn't be harsh it shouldn't be divisive and it shouldn't be pointless
2: um,
0: and so it's possible that many uh, swear words or um, would fall under harsh speech um, but it does depend a little bit how it's delivered you know there can be something said very lightly that includes a word like that and it's It's okay in a group of friends, for example. Um, So I think that might go in the timeliness because it depends what, because it might be unpleasant for somebody to hear. Um, I can say that I had somebody once tell me. Can
1: you put the mic closer to your mouth? Because it's kind of going in and out. Is
0: it going in and out? Is this a little bit better? You put it down it's too big for my head. Yeah. <laughs> That's the issue. That's the basic issue. So I'm doing the best I can. Okay, so um, let me know if it's getting really annoying again. I did have someone tell me once that they appreciated that I don't use any four-letter words. At least they hadn't heard me use any four-letter words because um, they had been listening to another teacher who had been doing that, and they... Um, were shocked that anybody who was sitting in the dharma seat would ever use a word like that. So there is that attitude out there. Not everybody might think that way, but this person did. So that's something to be aware of, is that there are people out there who think that those words are never acceptable. Yeah, I
1: thought it would kind of come under harsh and abusive, but as you say, it kind of depends on
2: how it's used and yeah.
0: timing
1: and situation. Yeah.
0: In in our somewhat casual culture, there are times when that's, you know, it's just kind of like a spice word to add in. But I, I have heard cases where it's, I've heard, heard cases also where it's used pointlessly. Like somebody's, I heard a guy at a bus stop and I was just listening to him on his cell phone and, he used a four letter word in probably every sentence and it was basically just emphasis. I thought, okay, sorry, this is cutting in and out. Jill, did you have something?
3: Yeah, I just had something to add to that because um, I feel like whether that's helpful for someone is so so much based on their culture and perspective. Like there's been instances where someone has sworn and it made me feel more comfortable around them because I saw them as like in a position of authority and that made me feel like I couldn't be myself. And then when they sort of like, I don't know, got more done on my level by using that kind of speech, like it made me more receptive to what they were saying. And I, I would say that with some of the teachers. Had, I think that's a really interesting question. It's cool. yeah.
2: Good question.
0: Along the lines of questions, I um, I ran across across this quote from Thomas Pynchon. "If they can get you asking the wrong questions, they don't have to worry about answers." I thought that was pretty good for all you conspiracy theorists out there, or whatever. But it's um, you know, it, it's true though that we we are enticed to ask certain questions by the way. Um, you know particularly in politics the way people talk they all the time they create an issue and tell you here's the deal and it's usually involving some question and they're creating the frame all right we're talking about the frame of questions being important and one thing you can ask before you get sucked into answering their question is is that the right frame yeah. and most people don't ask that very often that's as a straw man argument yeah, yeah. Straw man, or, yeah, or you're just setting up a, a basic, basic deception. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you try to create it so it's advantageous to you. You set up the question so that you have the answer to that question, and then people say, "Oh, great." But <laughs> wasn't ring around the collar something that was created by the laundry industry? Like it doesn't really exist. Yeah, they show these pictures of it. It solves this problem, and I'm thinking, I don't have that problem. <laughs> okay, <laughs> is that really a problem? Okay. All right, so today's, um, the broad topic of today's teaching is about view, right? About wise view, right view. It's interesting that these suttas start to sound kind of similar, some of them, but the first one, right, was about, um, second one was about wise speech, and the first one, what was that one about? It was about the four noble truths in the end. Um, Maybe it was also about view. So, these, are, um, these topics come around. So I wanted to offer um, an image and analogy today for thinking about view. And this originally comes from Mingyur Rinpoche, but I've modified it a little bit. So the, the the source of suffering or the arising of suffering comes from clinging or craving, right? And another way that we could say that is that it comes from fixation, you know, some way that we've Grabbed onto something—that's what the clinging is. That we've fixed it in a certain way, and it's if if we imagine our experience like water. When there's fixation, the water has frozen and become ice. And if it freezes around us, we're completely stuck. You know, we can't move, and it's uncomfortable. This might even be an analogy for how it has felt sometimes to you when you know that you're stuck in something but can't quite see the way out or Maybe you observe that somebody else is really, really stuck in a particular way of being or way of thinking, and you just look at them and you just think, wow, you know, but they're just, they're enwrapped in something. So this is the image I'm painting. And then um, the view that we bring to practice is like, is like sunlight if it's right view. If it's not right view, it's something else. But right view in particular, wise view, would be like sunlight shining on that ice. And slowly, not immediately, but slowly over time, it's going to melt uh, that ice. And so um, so we can you know, sort of feel that loosening and become free of that, that fixation. So once the ice is melted, though, then we don't need the sunlight in the same way. It's not playing the same function as it was while it was melting the ice, right? So if I'm kind of extending the analogy, we could say that maybe the sunlight that we were that was melting the ice was also warming up our body and making our body so warm that the ice couldn't form around us again, around that particular issue. So we can swim freely with this warm body so I think right view is kind of like that, is that it has this effect. If we are using wise view or right view, it's slowly dissolving the fixations that we have. That's kind of one of its functions on the path. And yet, um, it's warming us up or changing us somehow in the process. That's such that once those views are completely melted, like all of them, then we don't need it in the same way. It's the view that, um, it has the quality of dissolving reliance on views, as well as dissolving the ice. So I'm trying to, we're going to see this in the sutta that uh, we're going to read first. So I'm trying to create this analogy. Um, sometimes people wonder about this teaching on not holding to fixed views, which is what the first uh, sutta about from Bacchagota on fire is about. And they say, well, how can we live without views? Well, you don't live without views. You live without fixed views. It's a difference, right? And, but we need, and then why is the first step of the path right view? Because if there's not supposed to be any views, why should we have right view? But it's the, it's the tool along the way. It's the particular view that will lead to the undoing of view. Other views won't do that. That's the suggestion. As always, we have to test this out for ourselves on the path. So I hope that makes at least some sense. I'm trying to paint this analogy of why you would use views, but then in the end uh, awaken out of all views. So shall we look at this one about the fire? It's kind of a funny translation of the title. It sounds like Bacchagota himself is on fire, but I assure you that he's not, especially... (laughs) given our situation in California right now. Oh.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So it's supposed to be Tubachagota about fire or on the topic of fire. <laughs> <laughs> they do have that other sutta that says you should practice like your hair is on fire. <laughs> okay, um. so who would like to start reading this one?
2: Okay, Leanne. I have heard that on, occasion, on one occasion, the Blessed One was staying in Sabati at Jetis Grove on the Monastery. Then the wanderer, Bacchigota, went to the Blessed One and on arrival, exchanged courteous greetings with him. After an exchange of friendly greetings and courtesies, he sat to one side. As he was sitting there, he asked the Blessed One, how is it, Master Gautama? Does Master Gautama hold the view? The cosmos is eternal? Only this is true? Anything else, any other,
4: anything otherwise,
0: it's worthless. Okay, hang on for a second. Does anybody recognize these questions that are asked?
4: <laughs> yeah, it seems like they're all the same. <laughs>
0: they're the same ones that Malankyaputta was asking in the first sutta that we read. But this is this time the setup is different, a little bit different, right? There, Malankyaputta was demanding answers to those questions, and he wanted the answers, and if he didn't get them, he was going to disrobe. Here, um, Gota doesn't exactly ask for the answer to the questions he wants to know if the Buddha is holding that as his view and that he thinks that is definitely each one of these is definitely true so um, why don't we just uh, run through the ten questions to remind us who would like to read the uh, the next paragraphs all the way down through the end of the questions. Carol.
5: I'll try. Uh,
6: no, then does Master Gautama hold the view, the cosmos is not eternal, only this is true, anything otherwise is worthless? No. Then does Master Gautama hold the view, the cosmos is finite, only this is true, anything otherwise is worthless? No. Then does Master Gautama hold the view, The cosmos is infinite. Only this is true. Anything otherwise is worthless. No. Then does Master Gotama hold the view, the soul and body are the same. Only this is true, anything otherwise is worthless. No. Then does Master Gotama hold the view, the soul is one thing and the body another. Only this is true, anything otherwise is worthless. No. Then does Master Gotama hold the view, after death a tatagata exists? Only this is true. Anything otherwise is worthless. No. Then does Master Gotama hold the view, after death a tatagata does not exist? Only this is true. Anything otherwise is worthless. No. Then does Master Gotama hold the view, after death a tatagata both exists and does not exist? Only this is true, anything otherwise is worthless. No. Then does Master Gotama hold the view, after death, the Tathagata neither exists nor does not exist. Only this is true, anything otherwise is worthless. No. How is it, Master Gotama? When Master Gotama is asked if he holds the view, the cosmos is eternal, Dot dot dot. <laughs> After death, a Tathagata <clears throat> neither exists nor does not exist. Only this is true. Anything otherwise is worthless. He says no in each case. Seeing what drawback, then, is Master Gautama thus entirely dissociated from each of these 10 positions?
2: Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah,
0: he finally says, okay, he's not going to answer any of these. So he asks him, you know, what drawback do you see in holding any of these positions? Because, you know, any spiritual teacher worth his salt would surely have opinions about these things. So what is his response to that? Who would like to read that? Okay, Heidi.
1: Much as the position that the cosmos is eternal, is a thicket of views, a wilderness of views, a contortion of views, a writhing of views, a fetter of views. It is accompanied by suffering, distress, despair, and fever, and it does not lead to disenchantment, dispassion, cessation, to calm, direct knowledge, full awakening, unbinding.
0: Okay, and then he says that about each of the each of the other positions also. So it's very similar to his assertion that um these are not the fundamentals of the holy life you know they don't lead toward awakening essentially unbinding by the way is tanjeff's word for Nibbana. Um, we'll see that we'll see later why he chooses that one um, yeah, so essentially he says i don't I don't bother making assertions about these because it's it just goes in the wrong direction. We might be able to see this about these particular views, which might or might not really grab onto us. But consider that at the time, um, these were considered important questions in Indian philosophy. And it was somewhat startling then that someone who was claiming to be a spiritual teacher and had a whole order of monks uh, would would claim that none of these things were actually uh, useful to, to think about. Oh, by the way, we should also say who Vachagota is. So... He's not a monk. Uh, He's called the wanderer, Vachagota. And so that that means that he's he's not part of society. He has joined this group of people that live outside of formal Indian society. This was a phenomenon at the time, is that you could live um, a regular city life or a farming life. Or there were these groups of people that... um, uh, just couldn't couldn't deal with that in some way, decided not to participate, and they became wandering ascetics. And there was a tradition that wisdom was actually respected there. i I say that directly, it's not so respected in our culture, and that people who did that were um, somehow, even though they weren't quite um, they weren't always respected. But if they came to your door with a begging bowl, you'd probably give them something because it was you know part of their kind of cosmological belief system that you needed to support these people and so um, there were outside of society there were a lot of teachers actually who gathered students around them and a few people who did this independently and looking at all the options for how to live that's how the Buddha decided to live after his awakening said he didn't rejoin society he became one of these wandering teachers Um, yeah and so uh, in a way, these other people are competition to him um, in a certain way. And I don't know who Vajra teacher is. He's not a Jain, or um, and he's not one of the Brahmins of the people who live in society. But I don't think we find out who his teacher is or if he's independent. But he comes to the Buddha several times with these kind of speculative questions. He was a little bit like Malankyaputta and enjoying these kinds of philosophical things. And so it was um, kind of Uh, startling, that the Buddha wouldn't even engage with him on them. That was the normal way that you would uh, connect, actually, with another spiritual uh, person outside of society. Are there any questions up to this point or comments? Yes?
7: Kim, I I recently saw a movie last week about um, it was a review of a look at the the different levels of Buddhism over the centuries. And it talks about um, how it spanned almost like um, many different um, uh, phases where it it blended with the the indigenous stuff like when I was in India, it became more Tibetan with a bush nature. And it was the Zen, the Zen aspect of it. Um, but I was just wondering if um, did it, do you think that's just the nature of Buddhism that it will always have like many different paths and with its own um, system?
0: I think it's one of the more adaptable religions.
5: Can you repeat the question? Yeah. Oh, the question the
0: is. Yeah, the question is that um, he uh, recently saw something about the different kinds of Buddhism over the centuries, um, and it has. It seems to have the quality of. You can let me know if I'm getting this correct. Seems to have the quality of um, taking on some aspects of the culture that it joined, such as when it went into Tibet, it became more devotional, more like the Bon religion that they had there. When it went into Japan, it turned into Zen which has a very Japanese spare character to it. I'm adding a little bit there over what he said. So he's asking um, kind of what I think about this phenomenon. Is that what you're asking? Yeah. It's a good question. Um, I started to say I think Buddhism is one of the fairly adaptable religions. Maybe all the ones that have survived are adaptable, I don't know. but it does have this uh, ability to um, assimilate into cultures in the sense that it's not an orthodoxy, it's called an orthopraxy. And mm-hmm. so you have um, practices that, are, um, that do certain things to the mind, that transform the body and mind toward awakening. And that's what's considered core and fundamental to Buddhism, is that you have this particular method to doing it. But, the, you know, a method can look a lot of different ways. It doesn't have an orthodoxy so much where you have to believe certain things, and so that means it doesn't disrupt um, cultural beliefs, particularly, although it does, you know, it's not going to take on scientific materialism. That doesn't work within the system, so that's we're learning how to do that in the West. So, yeah, I think it does end up looking quite different in different places, but to be called Buddhism, I think it has to be... Um, moving toward a particular transformation of the mind to be able to to let go of clinging, to, to let go of view. Does that address <coughs> your question somewhat? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah.
8: Um, you, you said that he didn't really engage in Ratshagutta, but he didn't answer, as opposed to the other one that we're going to answer.
0: Oh, that's true. He yeah. didn't say no. He did answer. That's true. He said no. Yep. So the conditions were somehow... Well, it, it, he asked a question about the Buddha. He said, you know, do you hold this view? And he said no. Yeah. And that's a good thing actually to answer because if he doesn't answer that, he Vajagota might go away thinking the Buddha does hold that view and just refuse to tell him or something. So it was very clear that he doesn't. Yeah. yeah. And I
8: think it's interesting that he calls him Vacha
0: yeah, yeah kind of like a nickname like it
8: sounds like he's familiar with it. yeah i think like it's not the first <laughs> first time he's been in the grove
0: probably not i don't know what order all the sutas happened but there are several <laughs> sutas about watching gota <laughs> so you get the feeling he was a prominent character yeah. <laughs> did you have
4: something yeah i was thinking um so the final answer was because this is not conducive to full awakening. So maybe as as a teacher, um, that that that's a right answer of view because otherwise we can cling to whatever he said. But as practitioners, if we limit ourselves to any philosophical discussion, which is what this guy was looking for.
0: What is there else to talk about? Maybe maybe we need to just sit. I don't know. Uh, (laughs) It's it's true that the Buddha doesn't talk a lot about... He doesn't do a lot of philosophical speculation in the suttas. Uh, I think he's kind of... Thinks that's the wrong direction to go in. So he's pretty kind of radical, even among the radical teachers who left society. Um, He does... He is... He does like to talk about the Dharma, you know. If you ask him, "How can I let go of the five aggregates?" And, you know, he'll he's got a lot to say about that. Um, but yeah, I think he's very mindful of his speech being useful and beneficial and not
4: pointless. And yeah, I mean that, that's a kind of bring it up to this day and age. It's uh, are, I don't know for our own yeah group and discussions. It's like. Not much. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, sometimes he engages. Like with Prince Abaya, he had a conversation with him, and he, um, you know, he made the analogy about the the thing stuck in the throat, and so he, he does talk with people at their own level sometimes, just not so much in this particular sutta. Heidi, did you have?
1: Well, I, I think all of these questions they're really unanswerable. They're total, they're right. theoretical in the worst possible way. <laughs> That you can just yeah. matter Is on there and life on after about death? them. Yeah. But there's, there's there's no way that you can really come to an answer. It's all kind of, do you suppose? And so, so they're completely a waste of time to even think about.
0: For him, they are, yeah. I mean,
1: I'm so flat-headed. <laughs> I just, you know, it's like
4: why would we even consider these questions but, but that's the way that I see many people communicate it's just speculating about this about yeah. that about that so if, if you are in a social gathering what else are you going to talk you're not going to talk about the you know the, the sales and Macy's and all the stuff that you can buy <laughs> I mean, you're not about life after death guess,
0: right it so, yeah.
4: like, so, so at the end it becomes an, a, a speculative uh, you know conversation with you that otherwise it's nothing there. I mean, you're not going to talk about your sister in law, how much you hate her either. So it's like, you know, there are many things that are wrong to say, right? So, what is what else is there? I mean, probably just the speculations about life after death. About yeah, maybe that's
0: all that was left for the wandering ascetics. <laughs> right. Yeah. And then it's best to say nothing, I
4: think.
0: <laughs> that's, the, that's the implication here, at least yeah. in this case. Yeah. yeah um,
9: I'm minor in philosophy, so I'll put that up there in front. Um, yeah. The way I see it is philosophy at its core, if you go all the way back to the ancient uh, philosophers like Plato and stuff, so, it seems it seems to be it's all about how to live. yeah Who knows how to live
8: so it's useless.
0: For him, yeah, and he's decided that for Vacha, it's also useless, yeah. Yeah, he doesn't need the answers to those questions. It's useful
9: for figuring out how we should be as a society. As a
0: society, as individuals, how can we be happy? I think he's pointing beyond, he wants to point beyond that, and yeah. Also, um, you will find that the Buddha is actually very clear, well, we'll see it in the rest of the sutta, that he actually doesn't want to create a philosophy. Um, that if you try to, uh, at least in early Buddhism, if you try to make that into some kind of a complete theoretical model of the universe, you come up short. It, 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 um, it's more like, I, I heard it beautifully described as spotlights, you know. If you want to know about identity, you should look at the five aggregates. If you want to know about craving, you can categorize in terms of the six sense bases. Um, But you can't ever quite put together a complete theory of everything, like a sort of a physics of the universe. That happened later, in later traditions it got a lot more systematized. Um, But apparently the Buddha was not aiming at that, because I teach one thing and one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. And if you know that the cosmos is eternal, does that end your suffering or does that help you on the path to ending suffering? Not really you have to do the practice. And so that was mostly what he was pointing people toward. You see differences, to your question, over the centuries in what the, how the Buddha was represented, and that has to do, I think, with the society at the time, what's valuable for them. But um, the early Buddha that's, that we see here, I think is pretty timeless in terms of just being very pragmatic, and it can apply in many different cases. But you won't find a complete life philosophy here. That wasn't his aim. Sorry.
4: And yeah, that's okay. That's
0: what you're looking for.
4: So, can I? Yeah. Can I, um, there are. I I I have seen that there are several beliefs in Buddhism itself. You know, about karma, about life after death, and the reincarnation, and all of that. That didn't come from the Buddha, then. I mean, did it or? We
0: came after, after? Well, the karma was a, an idea already present at the time, as was rebirth. Although not everybody believed in it, sometimes people assume, oh, everybody at that time believed in it, so he just picked it up. Not not true. Actually, there were um, discussions at the time about whether rebirth is true or not. Um, The view of karma and rebirth is part of wise view, so he did incorporate it in. It's part of what's called mundane wise view that will lead to a better life. Um, And I think uh, it's, you know, he noticed that if you uh, think in this way, it will motivate you, it will further your path, essentially. That's the point of wise view, is that they're uh, the views that if you hold them, the path will be onward leading. For example, there are other possibilities. Karma is a theory of action. You know, what happens when I do something? What's the result? And karma says, well, there's a there's a, a underlying lawfulness to how that goes. If you do things that are motivated by greed, hatred, and delusion, you will tend to get painful results. And if you do things that are motivated by non-greed, non-hatred, and non-delusion, you will get pleasant results. Um, is that the building fire alarm? Do is you it, need is to, somebody's phone going
1: on or
4: something?
8: It could be the Lord of the Bank too. Oh, maybe,
0: to yeah. Okay, I don't think we need to respond to that. If it was
8: in here, we would hear
0: it. We would hear there it. Okay, go. there it goes. Yeah. So, but there were other theories of action. You see them in some of the other suttas. There are people who would come to the Buddha and say, Well, I believe that um, there, there are no results of action. You know, you can kill people and it doesn't have any consequences. Or there was somebody who believed that the results of actions are pretty much random. You know, it's like you do things and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. So why, you know, there's no order. And those views are not very useful for walking a path, right? Um, and so, you know, you have to believe somehow that your actions are, are going towards some ordered direction and that you have some degree of control over them. And so that's the, that's the view that he suggests. Interestingly... He doesn't claim, like I said, he's not trying to make a philosophy. He doesn't necessarily claim this is um, 100% true all the time. Um, But he says if you believe this and act in line with this view, it will advance your ability to let go of clinging and to suffer less. I think this is very interesting coming from myself, a scientific background. I know you have a similar background is that science believes it is discovering the absolute truth about the universe. And the Buddha's not as clear on that. <laughs> it's more pragmatic. If you if you think in this way, it will get this result. You can say, well, what if it's not really true? And the answer is, who, who cares if you end up ending suffering? <laughs> it's a pretty stark thing to consider in our scientific materialist culture uh, about that. Um, I'll let you play with that on your own, to what degree that sits for you. But um, I love that this is turning up all these interesting questions. <laughs> Shall we read on?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Okay, who wants to go next? Um, the next page um, says, a position vacha is something. Who would like to read there? It
1: starts with the sentence before it yes. Oh, okay, it does master.
0: Yes, you're right, the question.
1: Does Master Gotama have any position at all? <clears throat> a position, Vacha, is something that a Tathagata has done away with. What a Tathagata sees is this: such is form, such its origination, such its disappearance, such is feeling, such its origination, such its disappearance, such is perception, such are fabrications, such is consciousness such its origination such its disappearance because of this i say at the tagata with the ending fading away cessation renunciation and relinquishment of all construings all excogitations all eye making and mind making and obsessions with conceit is through lack of clinging sustenance released
0: yeah so that's this amazing. is the heart of what he wants to convey what are these qualities at the beginning of form feeling perception etc what list is that
2: the,
0: pile. the piles that's right they're the five aggregates the khandas, right. yeah or the skandhas mm-hmm. in sanskrit yeah so so he he didn't he gives it what's called, this is an analytical answer. So there's a question and he, he gives a direct answer. He says, this is something I've done away with. And then he elaborates on that. And he says, he, he doesn't just say, well, I don't have any position. He says, this is what I see. So this is how experience is for me. I see form. I see its origination. I see its disappearance. You know, I see feeling. So he gives the components that we would normally identify with. That's what the five aggregates are. Represent, they represent the five things that we build ourselves out of. Um, it, by the way, in the early tradition, it is not necessarily assumed that the five aggregates cover all of experience. That's a later addition, is to say that the five aggregates are synonymous with anything you could experience. It's not quite said in the early tradition, but these are anything that you might identify with. And so, Basically, and then he says, um, all I making mind-making, and obsessions with conceit, all tendency to form a self is gone in me. I, um, and so because of that, he calls himself released. Interestingly, though, this isn't quite good enough for Vacha I mean, it's a pretty complete answer. <laughs> um, but he has another question. <laughs> Who would like to read the next question? Jill.
3: Um. Yeah, I just need to find it. But what? What is the first part but, of the sentence again? But oh, Master
0: Gotama, the monk whose mind.
3: Oh, okay. Um. But Master Gotama, the monk whose mind is thus released, where does he reappear? Reappear, Vacha doesn't apply. In that case, Master Gotama, he does not reappear. <laughs> does not reappear, Vacha does not doesn't apply. Both does and does not
5: reappear, doesn't apply, neither does
0: nor does not reappear, doesn't apply. So it's like he already had this question answered earlier, but his mind still goes back to it and he says, but wait, but what happens after death? (laughs) And so he goes through the same tetralemma. And this time, um, this time it's a different question, of course, he's asked directly, where does this person reappear? And so then the Buddha says, it just doesn't apply. It's interesting, because he does actually give a direct answer, which he didn't before from monk Kiputa. Okay, so then, something happens to Vacha. Um, who would like to read the next two paragraphs? I can
3: read more.
0: Okay, go ahead, um, Julie.
3: How is it, Master Gotama, when Master Gotama is asked if the monk reappears, does not reappear? Both does and does not reappear, neither does not nor does not reappear. He says, doesn't apply in each case. At this point, Master Gotama, I am befuddled. At this point, confused. This modicum of clarity coming to me from your earlier conversation is now obscured. <laughs> this is so great. Poor guy. Let <laughs> me to go on. Yeah. Okay. Of course you're befuddled, Vacha. Of course you're confused. Deep vacha is this phenomena, hard to see, hard to realize, tranquil, refined, beyond the scope of conjecture, subtle to be experienced by the wise. For those with other views, other practices, other satisfactions, other aims, other teachers, it is difficult to know. That being the case, I will now put some questions to you.
0: Okay, so counter questions. Let's stop for a moment here. Um, So vacha gets confused um, by this. And so the Buddha... Very compassionately says, "Well, of course you're confused." Um, and in this long list of of things, he says about deep, hard to see, etc. Those are descriptions of the Dhamma. Um, those are they appear this this particular list appears in other suttas also. It's one of those boilerplate items. And notice that one of the uh, qualities is beyond the scope of conjecture. So he's trying. This is again pointing towards this thing that the. The Dhamma is something that doesn't actually have really words or concepts that you can really quite convey, but the Buddha has to do this somehow as a teacher. This is his challenge, is to meet us befuddled beings who are lost in our worlds of concepts and somehow say things in a way that leads us out of that thicket of views, wilderness of views, fetter of views, etc., whatever he said earlier. So, um, and then he takes one little stab and says, you know, people who have other practices aren't going to be able to get this. Uh, so, okay. But he doesn't just sort of leave him hanging there. He says, okay, okay, I get that you're confused. So he's going to give him uh, a, an analogy now. So who would um, who would like to read that part? Inani.
2: Answer as you see fit. What do you think, Vaka? If a fire were burning in front of you, would you know that? Well, would you know that this fire is burning in front of me? Yes. And suppose someone would ask you, Vaka, this fire burning in front of you, dependent on what is it burning? Thus asked, what would you reply? I would reply. This fire burning in front of me is burning dependent on grass and timber as its sustenance. If the fire burning in front of you were to go out, would you know that this fire burning in front of me has gone out? Yes. And suppose someone were to ask you, this fire that has gone out in front of you, in which direction from here has it gone? East, (laughs) west? North or South? Thus asked, how would you reply? That doesn't apply it, Master Boatman. Any fire burning dependent on a sustenance of grass and timber, being unnourished from having consumed that sustenance and not being offered any other, is classified simply as (laughs) (laughs) So he
0: makes it very clear, right, for anybody can understand about the fire. And I just want to point to these words that are being used. Thank you, that was nicely read. Um, So he uses this word sustenance, and that's the same word on the previous page where he says, uh, all excogitations, etc., through lack of clinging or sustenance are released. It's the same word. That word is upadana. Fuel. Fuel. And so I think um, we touched on this briefly last time, is that the Indian physics says that, um, that fire burns because it's clinging to the fuel. It's, and you can kind of see that, the way fire has those kind of fingers coming up out of the wood. So they imagined that the fire was grabbing the wood actually or the grass or whatever it was and that that's the sustenance it was kind of feeding on that and then it would eventually turn it into ashes and if there's no more food you know the fire is gone and this out um, is the same word it's actually I may not get the conjugation quite correct but the word is something like nibuti sounds like nibbana it's the same so a a mind has gone out or the fire has gone out. So, but he gets Vacha Gota to understand this, what he means by it doesn't apply by using this analogy. And so he realizes, oh, you're right, you wouldn't really say that a fire goes in some direction. And so his questions are the same. What happens after death? Where, where does he reappear? Where does he go? <laughs> and the Buddha says it just doesn't apply. It's just out. So this, you know, we can't necessarily understand this, but at least it sorts stuff kind of point toward an image that we can at least hold in our minds. Okay. Um, so then it goes through... Well, we should read the next paragraph so we get the images of the stump and so forth. Um, But just read the one about form. Who would like to do that one?
5: Even so, Vata, any physical form by which one describing the Tathagata would describe him, that the Tathagata has abandoned, its root destroyed, made like a palmyra stump, deprived of the conditions of development, not destined for future arising. Freed from the classification of form, bhaja. the Tathagata is deep, boundless, hard to fathom, like the sea. Reappears, doesn't apply. Does not reappear, doesn't apply. Both does and does not reappear, doesn't apply. Neither reappears nor does not reappear, doesn't
0: apply. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. So this, this first line, any physical form by which one describing the Tathagata would describe him, that has been abandoned. So this sounds like the last line of the Upasiva's questions where it said all pathways of speech have been uprooted. You You can't talk about this. So it's not like you can't describe the Buddha. You can, sit, you know, if, he, if he's sitting there and he's still alive and his physical form is there, you could describe him physically. But what he's saying is that for him, um, he doesn't identify with any of that that you might describe him by. You know, oh Buddha, you have such lovely feet. Well, you know, okay, that would, but that says something about you. It doesn't say anything about his feet in particular. Maybe this is a silly example, but. It then goes on to any feeling, any perception, any fabrication, and any consciousness. Well, views are part of fabrication. So this is pointing toward, you can't really say precisely what the Buddha's views are. He doesn't have fixed views that would be something you could always say was true about him. Are there questions or comments at this point? Okay. So then we have two paragraphs of praise. Um Gota likes this answer. He is satisfied at this point. Um, would anyone like to read those two paragraphs through, just so we hear them? Kurt, would you like to read those?
8: <laughs> when this was said, the wanderer, Vachagotra, said to the blessed one, Master Gotama, it is as if there were a great solid tree not far from a village or town. From inconstancy, its branches and leaves would wear away, its bark would wear away, its sapwood would wear away, so that on a later occasion, divested of branches, leaves, bark, and sapwood, it would stand as pure heartwood, In the same way, Master Gotama's words are divested of branches, leaves, bark, and sapwood, and stand as pure heartwood. Magnificent Master Gotama. Magnificent, just as if he were to place upright what was overturned, to reveal what was hidden, to show the way to one who was lost, or were to carry a lamp into the dark, so that those whose eyes could see forms, in the same way as Master Gotama, Through many lines of reasoning, made the Dhamma clear. Go to Master Gotama for refuge to the Dhamma and to the Sangha of monks. May Master Gotama remember me as a lay follower who has gone to him for refuge from this day forward for life.
2: Yeah.
0: So, oh, oh, yeah, exactly. yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah,
0: so this is the same thing that Prince Abaya said, right? It's this spontaneous um, expression of refuge that he doesn't really invite, um, but it seems to be produced from people. So the, uh, the, the theme, one theme I want to point us to in all these cases where people have come to talk to the Buddha is that he doesn't let himself get pinned down. You know, Malankyaputta couldn't pin him down on answering these questions. Vajagota couldn't. All he got was doesn't apply or no, <laughs> I don't hold that position. Um, Prince Abaya couldn't get him to take a side on the two-horned dilemma that was supposed to trap him. This is this is common, and this is because um, he's very careful about fixed views. You know, those are not the quality. And it's not that he has to be careful. He doesn't have fixed views. And so... He demonstrates that through the way he talks to people, and it's very challenging for us as regular people who have a lot of fixed views um, to imagine that that's a strong position. I mean, he's pretty pretty hard to beat in in debate, right? But if he never says, he never does it by proclaiming a position and um, you know making sure that it's totally defended. From all sides, even though Gota doesn't quite understand that and says, "Oh, you've made this clear through many lines of reasoning." <laughs> I guess it's kind of true for for Vajra. That's what it felt like, but um, he doesn't. Yeah, he doesn't. Uh, he doesn't have a fixed position, and yet he is very strong. I'm going to read a quote about that later because it's something that another thing that I think we can kind of chew on for a while in our practice is how can it be strong to let go. How can it be strong not to cling? Why is that the position that is completely secure? Um, We don't quite believe it at some level. And if you think you believe it, check again. Um, So I think it's a quality only of completely enlightened people.
5: So I have a question. Yeah. So is it true to say that right view is
0: equivalent to no fixed view? Yes, in the end. The right view changes over the course of the path. Because it's part of the path, it's something to be cultivated or developed. And so your view actually changes along the path. We maybe start with the simple view of karma. If I do something good, it's better than if I do something bad. And then eventually we maybe start thinking more in terms of the Four Noble Truths. Is there suffering or not suffering? And how could there be less suffering? And then if we really pursue what is the least amount of suffering I could have all the way to the mm-hmm. end, you'll have to let go of you completely because at some point, even holding on to the idea of the Four Noble Truths will be that one last thing that's holding you to some position. And so you have to let that go too and that, that would be freedom. And then you can pick up and put down views just fine. You're no longer attached to them, right? But it's a process to get there. You can,
5: uh, I appreciate you know. that view that it's a process. Yeah. That
0: helps a lot. Yeah. it's there. There isn't one right view. It's something that evolves. Our view gets more and more refined, more and more right <laughs> over time. And the final right view is to have no fixed views, essentially. because
2: okay.
0: that makes sense. The best I can put words on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like the way... Um, there's a parallel thing about desire, you know, are desires supposed to be the cause of suffering and most people eventually go to their teacher and say, well, I have the desire to awaken, is is that a problem? And um, I asked this to my teacher once, I think I've told this story before, and he said to me, oh Kim, you can have that desire until it's the last one.
5: And it's a more useful, helpful desire. It's a good
0: desire. It's a useful one.
5: Some of the others. It's an onward
0: leading one.
2: Yeah.
0: So we that's another thing we check, is is this onward leading. That's what he says, these views don't lead to dispassion, to awakening, to blah, blah, blah. So we can also check if it seems like the path is advancing through some view that we have. It's okay to have views, you just have to refine them and change them over time until, until we're ready to let go of them.
7: Yeah.
0: All right, we do have one more sutta, um, and then we'll have some wrap up. This is a short one. Who would like to start on this one? This is also about Vachagota, even though it's called the Ananda Sutta. Okay, Brad, yeah.
9: Then the wanderer Vachagota approached the Blessed One and said to him, How is it now, Master Gautama? Is there a self? When this was said, the Blessed One was silent. Then, Master Gautama, is there no self? (laughs) A second time, the Blessed One was silent. Then the Wanderer Vachagota rose from his seat and departed.
0: (laughs) Nothing there, like you said, Carlotta. (laughs) (laughs) So much for cocktail party conversation. Yeah, right. You can go
9: on, Brad. Then, not long after the Wanderer Vachagota had left, the Venerable Ananda said to the Blessed One, where is that? Ananda. Because it's
0: it Ananda. Okay. Yeah.
9: Ananda said to the Blessed One, Why is it, venerable sir, that when the Blessed One was questioned by the Wanderer of Ratchagoda, he did not answer? If an yes. Ananda, when I was asked by the wanderer of Rachagoda, is there a self, I had answered, There is a self, this would have been siding with those whose, those ascetics and Brahmins who are eternalists. And if when I was asked by him, is there no self, I had answered, there is no self, this would have been siding with those ascetics and Brahmins who were annihilationists.
0: Right, okay, so we'll pause there for a moment. So this is interesting, right? This is our first opportunity to see the fourth category of questions. Remember, they're the ones that get a categorical answer, an analytical answer, a counter question, or just to be set aside. So this one is to be set aside. Um, He just doesn't answer. You can imagine that's kind of surprising. I mean, usually he at least got a something. But um, so he doesn't answer at all, and so he leaves. And so then Ananda, who's standing there, is like, what, you know, why didn't you say anything? And so the Buddha distinguishes between these two views that he didn't want to seem to be siding with. And so the eternalists or the eternalist view is the view of an enduring self or soul, that there is some essence there and whether or not you think it's reborn or goes to heaven or whatever, I, I don't know all the views in Indian culture at that time but it was the idea that there is something permanent about uh, a person and so if he says, is there a self, and the Buddha um, responds to that and says that there is then Vajra Gauta would say, great, I want to find my true self and you know, where is it, and, you know, so that he would have given the wrong impression. But, um, so Vachagoda says, well, then there must be no self. Um, And he doesn't answer that either, and and that's because if he were to assert there is no self, then um, he's claiming that that would put him with the annihilationists, and those are people who are basically like Western materialists, who believe that when the body dies, that's the end of everything, and you know, it's, there's no continuation of anything after that, it's just gone. And the Buddha doesn't believe that either, um, or he doesn't assert that view, I should be careful, he doesn't assert that view either. And so he's worried that um, if he responds to there is no self, that's what it will look like. So this is interesting, right, For, because we often hear, that's why this teaching of anatta is not self. It's not no self, um, that distinguished or non-self, I've also heard. And that that distinguishment is so that it counters the view that there is a self, atta. um, So it's an atta. But it doesn't say that there's no self, na atta. Um, So it doesn't go that far. It just says that whatever you might identify specifically the five aggregates, form, feeling, perception, formations, and consciousness, none of those qualifies as yourself. But that doesn't mean that there's nothing here. The five aggregates are here. (laughs) You have an experience happening, but it's not related to a permanent self. So it's a little more subtle than um, just saying yes or no. But the Buddha doesn't see a way out of that when he's asked point blank, and so he just decides it's better not to say anything at all. So then he goes on and he clarifies a little bit. Um, let's just finish this off and then we'll talk a little bit more. Who would like to read the last section there? Either Kai or Helen, I don't want not want you. Oh
2: Sure. Um, if, um, Ananda, when I was asked by the wanderer, what do you go to is there a self? I had answered, there is a self. Would this have been consistent on my part with the arousal of the knowledge that all phenomena are non self? No venerful sir. And if, when I was asked by him, is there no self, I had answered, there is no self. The wanderer Vachigota already confused with the fallen into even greater confusion, thinking, it seems that the self I formerly have does not exist now. Well, <laughs>
0: poor Vachigota is very, always very confused by the Buddha and because he's so sh- confused about his views. But, you know, I'll say that there is a happy ending for him. There's another sutta where he decides to ordain, and he does become an (laughs) arahant. So, of course he does, exactly. That's how it always ends for people, usually. The Buddha Um, had a
7: good publicist, I think.
0: Yeah. (laughs) But it does work out for Vajra eventually. But he... um, You know, he gives a further reason for why he didn't enter these things besides that he just didn't want to appear, he didn't want to just look bad in a certain way. He says there actually is a deeper reason, which is that, you know, he can't agree that there's a self because he's had the deep insight that all phenomena are non-self. That's why he teaches Ananta. And so um, he could never say that there's a self. Is there no self? Well, that might be closer to the truth, but... It doesn't work well because people who believe in a self, it's very disturbing for them to have somebody assert there is no self. You just try this in a Western Dharma center, you know, um, where we tend to have this, um, yeah, we tend to, in Western culture, we believe in ourself just like they did in India, just a second. Um, So he also had some compassion that he thought this would not go over well. It would not be the right thing for Vacha to hear. It would not be timely, essentially. Um, yeah, so Stas, did you have a question or a comment? So, if that was if that reasoning
7: was given through you that, that wouldn't be beneficial.
0: Oh, that I don't want to confuse you,
7: or the exact
0: I see me. I don't know. Um, yeah, you would think based on what he says to Ananda, but um, maybe we have to trust that the Buddha had a good sense of what state of mind he was in at that moment or something. I don't know. I think. Yeah. There are other times where he gives a more clear explanation, like he did in the in the spire sutta. So I'm not sure what was up with him that day. Different yeah, I'm setting. Just thinking yeah.
7: That in a teacher role, sometimes you might tell somebody something very different than the fellow colleague
2: mm-hmm. a- Yeah, Ananda
0: was a monk, he was his um attendant, you know, he was already a stream enter probably at that point, so he would understand better, yeah. So, my sense of this, taken just by itself, this is you know, a little sparse, you know? but in the context of all the other teachings that we've read um, by the Buddha and the way he kind of works with people, I would assert, uh, you can see what you think, that Uh, he has a sense that views are functional and that, you know, you might hold a certain view at a certain time because at that time it's useful. You know, like he was very happy to say to Prince Abaya, oh, if something is true and beneficial, then I say it. And if it's, you know, he had these old criteria that he went through like a diagram almost of how you do wise speech, because um, that was probably just perfect for Prince Abaya at that moment. Um, but he, there are other times where he talks about speech differently, and there are you know, times where he, maybe like in this case, you would think, well, this would be true and ben- probably beneficial. Why didn't he say it? Well, maybe it wasn't timely. So, you know, there, there's a sense that he's choosing the view at the particular time um, that's going to help them help reduce their clinging. So he says specifically in the first two cases, you know, if I had said yes or no to this question, then I would be reinforcing a view that in him that I don't want to reinforce, either eternalism or annihilationism. Um, so he's, he's thinking about, if I say this, what is going to happen in his mind? You know, what is he gonna, how is he going to see the world after I say this, knowing that he has influence? Um, it's, and he chooses, that in certain cases, to say certain things or not. And so this is the way that he he's able to use views. You know, he doesn't he doesn't say, I don't know about anything. I don't um, you know I never assert anything. There is actually that's a, a category of um, of views that's called the eel wriggler, <laughs> the eel wriggling views, and it's um, dismissed completely in, in a sutta. Um, you know that you shouldn't you shouldn't have no assertions. But the Buddha's um, very careful. To never have a fixed view, but to use views when he needs to, and he'll make assertions. You know, when Malankya Puta said, um, How come you didn't answer these questions? And if you don't know the answer, you should tell me that you don't know. He said, Misguided man, that was not how, you know, that is not what, what you agreed when you ordained. So he was pretty clear about that. There's also a case where another monk named Sati, kind of funny because that means mindfulness, although I think it's Sati with a long A. But anyway, he comes to the Buddha and and he offers a speculative view. He says, I believe that, I believe, he even attributes it to the Buddha. He says, I understand that the way you teach the Dharma is that consciousness is reborn. That's what gets reborn and transferred between beings. And the Buddha reacts and he says, misguided man, when have you ever known me to teach the Dharma that way? I do not say that. So again, he's not going to get pinned down on the view. And then he gives a, like a, Seven-page explanation of dependent origination. <laughs> so poor Sati gets completely uh, overpowered by his analytical answer to to this question, and I think that's a whole sutta because that was a big view at the time. If you think about what gets reborn, oh, it's you know the consciousness seems like the obvious choice, um, but the Buddha was very very clear that is not that is not a continuing quality. So. um I think it's hard to be a Buddha. You know, you have to work with these beings who really want you to tell them how it is. (laughs) And so you you do want to tell them how it is. You have to tell them something to get them to practice and find an awakening and, you know, free themselves from suffering. But you have to do it in a way that they don't entangle themselves further, even though everything you say they try to grab onto and make into a theory and make into something real. Um, So all the time he's he's having to, to do this. I'm projecting, of course, but this is my. <laughs> I don't know that this is how it was for the Buddha. I don't think he suffered over all of this, but I'm painting this picture because that's my impression from, from studying the suttas up to now.
2: Yeah.
0: I did want to return briefly to um, this point about it being a strong position not to have a fixed view, and how hard that is for us. This is commented on in this book called The Magic of the Mind, uh, which is by a Sri Lankan monk named uh, Jnanananda, who uh, is fairly recent. He died earlier this year, actually. So this is a book that he wrote. Um, he says, The attitude of the such-like one, that's the Buddha, reflects an extraordinary blend of qualities ranging from firmness and steadfastness to adaptability and resilience. To the worldling, this appears as a paradox because a worldling always associates the concept of firmness with some standpoint. Not to take up a standpoint is to vacillate, and hence he finds it difficult to conceive of a firmness apart from a fixed standpoint. The Buddha, however, discovered that the truth is just the contrary. This is a quote from a sutta. To one attached, there is wavering. To the unattached one, there is no wavering. And it goes on from there. And then the second quote from another sutta. The one unattached wavers not. But the one attached, who claims, does not transcend samsara, which is of the nature of thisness and otherwiseness." Knowing this peril, this great danger in having supports, let the monk fare along mindfully, resting on nothing, clinging to nothing. Sounds like Upasiva, doesn't it? However, Upasiva says, Alone, unsupported, I am not able to cross over the great flood. Declare to me, O universal I, supported by what I might cross over this flood? And the Buddha says, contemplating nothingness, supported by there is not, cross over the one. It's the same point being made. These are all coming from three different suttas (laughs) that I just read. So the Buddha has to say this again and again and again in many different ways, is that the strongest support is is emptiness. But it's very hard for us, it's a process to get there. You can't just snap your fingers and say, okay, from now on I'm going to not have any supports. You know, we would like to be able to do that, but it's, um, it's not easy. And it's more a task of, I think, finding better and better supports. So when we come in to practice, totally confused, like vachagota, we're given supports, like, say, the refuges or um, the, the, white, the right view of karma. And so then we say, okay, that'll be my support. And then you practice with that, and then it refines over time. And you maybe don't need to rely on that as such a fixed view. You say, oh, actually, you know, there's, there's these subtleties to it or these nuances and this part is grosser and this part is finer and you start to see distinctions and then you live more in the refined part when it goes on from there. Yeah.
1: I think, I'm just thinking that uh, it seems like it's a very human tendency that the saying i think therefore i am we think we have theories we have ideas because that makes our ego feel more solid and we feel like therefore i am because i have these ideas and that's what it, it seems it's just so natural that we just
0: it uh, is yes, grab yeah.
1: on to ideas and theories and We're very
0: conceptual. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean because we start it, out it
1: makes us feel powerful or smart or
0: secure, it's actually. Secure. It's the yeah. fear the fear in the end of you know, we need something, we want something it. to to support us. And so the Buddha says it's okay. You know, you start yeah. here and then you'll go from there. He doesn't ever just say, throw everything out from the very beginning. That that wouldn't really be skillful for us. But you're right. Um, you know, we do need to, we do always, it's interesting to watch the mind, always wanting to hold on things. to something. Joseph Goldstein, who's a teacher, who's been a teacher for 40 or 45 years, um, says that he has had the insight, now I've got it, about 10,000 times. <laughs> <laughs> And I, I'm starting to understand that having had it about, you know, 50 times myself. Um, but, you, you know, it's like some, and it's okay. I mean, it's okay along the ways. like you get some new insight. You like, oh, I see. And then, you know, you practice, and you should. You should move into that and take it on and practice with that. And then, you know, a couple of months or a couple of years later, you'll say, oh, that wasn't it. It's actually, you know, and this is how it is. Um, but, you know, there is also something, even though it's all these speculative views and theories that we sit here and talk about the Dharma, it's all good. If we're, you know, if we're aiming for freedom and awakening, it's okay to exchange ideas with others. We will, hopefully, that will be onward leading for us.
5: Well, that really speaks to the fact of it being the process, mm-hmm. the whole the whole journey is. is a process. And wherever we are, right.
0: all we can do is let go of the next thing.
2: <laughs>
0: it's all good. Other points? Questions? Speculative views?
3: <laughs>
0: yeah. This
3: is sort of backtracking to something we were talking about earlier with views, and one of those views, I think, would be rebirth and reincarnation. I've heard various viewpoints on like what this means and what we would have meant by incorporating it. I'm curious what you have to say about that.
0: Yeah. Um, I don't know of any teachers from this era who ever require anybody to, to believe that. Um, are you asking about the the early teachings? Why is it in there, or how we should relate yeah, to it now?
3: Sure, just anything you would think. Yes, that sounds like a good. <laughs> yes.
0: Rebirth. By the way, we mostly talk about rebirth in the early Buddhist tradition. That being the process where the mind, you know, the mind and body end. This process ends, and something. Um, takes up a new life in womb somewhere. So that would be the rebirth process, is that just the flow of karma? Reincarnation, my understanding, is that's where there's some intentionality to it. So if you're a Tibetan tolku, you have the ability to somewhat to choose how you get reborn, because you're a great bodhisattva of high level. So that's just what the distinction between those words is. Um, the The idea of rebirth is a view. Because unless you've seen your past lives or you know have the meditative refinement to know that um, we haven't died yet, so we don't know. So it's a view. So then the question about views, right at our concluding point, is that view useful to you? And my I've thought about this, you know, should I believe in rebirth? Should I not? Probably it's better not to either believe, or to disbelief, you know, disbelief is also a belief. If you assert there is no rebirth, that's a pretty strong view, like asserting that there is, how do you know? (laughs) So so I've found when I've kind of refined it in my mind that there are ways in which um, siding or taking on the view of rebirth could be onward leading or it could be not. And also taking on the view there isn't rebirth could be on the or not. So you have to see what the proclivities of your mind are. So for example, if you take on the view that there is rebirth, that can be a huge spur to practice because this is never going to end. You're never getting out of this unless you get fully enlightened. Um, It doesn't end at death everything that you didn't do is going to go on and some other being is going to inherit all of that and the work is just going to go on and on and on. So this can be, you know, if you have any compassion, you suddenly say, oh my gosh, I've got to wake up. This round is endless. I'm tired. Or you could take on the view of rebirth at the sense of there's a lot of time, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty good Right now. <laughs> Maybe it's good enough, <laughs> you know, I'll get to that one next lifetime, <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll ordain next lifetime. So, you know, or you could take on, one reason that the Buddha was actually somewhat of a proponent of taking on the view of rebirth is that if you really believe that um, this is it and, um, you know, if you're an annihilationist and you think it's all going to end at death, you don't have as strong a motivation to um, work hard on the path. If your life's pretty good, you know, all right. If I can just hang on to it until death, that'll be good enough. Also, if you can get away with something until death, you won't ever feel the consequences of it. And so it has a little bit of degrading of the ethical uprightness if you believe in annihilationism. And I think we see that in our culture to some degree. A sense of, you know, if you can get away with it, what the heck, you know? Mm. He who dies with the most toys wins, or something. You know, I don't know what this is, but um, or it could be that if you think this is your only life, then you should practice like your hair's on fire. This is your chance. You know, you're not going to. If you want to know that what it's like not to have any suffering, wouldn't that be great? You've only got this one chance. You better do it. So take your pick among all of those. Right, which view is going to be supportive? Uh, for being onward leading in the path, and what is your real aim? Questions like this, although they are philosophical, can be approached in a way that help us connect with our deepest values, that help us decide what our intentions are. So even though the Buddha was very clear about not answering any of these questions, there are ways in which for us less enlightened people, um, taking them on with the spirit of how it can help our practice, could be could be useful to us. So I encourage thinking about those things in terms of how they might be helpful to you or to other beings that you have compassion for. Does that help, Jill? Oh,
3: yeah. yeah. That's great. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Let's have more of these classes. <laughs> yeah.
0: This is fun, isn't it? This oh, turned out fun. to be a fun one. Yeah.
4: Yeah, I will find... I will find pretty hard to do this on my own, oh, not to oh, try yeah. to understand this. Like.
0: Yeah, and we haven't totally understood them, right? right. We've just talked through them. Who knows? Um, I'm sure there's much more to be gotten out of these teachings. I've certainly found over the years that they keep revealing more and more. This is one reason I love Sutta study, and I love infecting other people with the interest in it, because if you come back and read these uh, uh, another year from now, you might see something else. And it might interact with your practice differently. I hope you'll, maybe I'll just say the parting thought that I, I hope you'll take in the suttas as genuine aids to your practice and really think about the images and, you know, um, maybe allow the some of what the the spirit of this to go into your sitting and just see if um, some of these ideas start turning up in your life. That's what I find. The more I read the suttas, the more they kind of turn up and, Um, resonate with things in my life and then that makes it practical it's like oh actually sure this is about a cow in a field and I'm not a farmer myself but there's a way in which that image is relevant in this situation nonetheless so thank you all for your practice this wouldn't have been half as fun without all of you here (laughs) we all need each other to do this so thank you very much thank you you.